This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I love when Paul Brennan listens to me. I love the Dixie Chicks, too. Uh, not ready to make nice, indeed. The U.S. and China, President of the United States over in Japan, uh, tweeting while he was there, for sure. And this has gotten pretty complicated, maybe notwithstanding the president's assertion that winning a trade war would be easy. Not so easy. And no, as we mentioned, we're going to have more on this later in the show. We caught up with uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson about how it's affecting mm-hmm. his state. But let's get a state of play right now from Sarah McGregor. She is U.S. Economic Policy Team Leader here with us in New York, usually based in Washington. Great to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. All right. So bring us up to date because – it's fast moving, but doesn't seem to really necessarily be moving in a direction toward completion. Where are we right now? Well, it's funny you bring up the word easy because Trump famously tweeted that trade wars are good and easy to win. What looks like the, the part that has been easy for Trump is sort of getting China to the table through tariffs. And that's that has brought them probably a little bit further along than previous administrations. And, you know, they did have a deal that the U.S. said China then reneged from. And so talks have basically collapsed. So what doesn't look to be so easy is closing that deal. And I think that's where we stand right now. You know, Trump seemed to turn the table on the weekend with, with China and say the U.S. isn't ready to make a trade deal when all along he's been saying that's, that's all that they want. So um, it's a bit of a tricky spot right now. And I do wonder, Sarah, and what are you guys hearing in terms of what is the most important thing to the president? Is it a win? Is it really a good, smart, progressive trade deal? Something that, you know, I think most people say we needed to redo our deals, certainly with some members of uh, the world, including China. Um, So what is it that you think is driving him? So I think, you know, Trump probably does have quite a deep belief that the U.S. is getting an unfair shake uh, in world trade against China. And he's, you know, he talked about that before he ran for president. But all that being said, he's running for reelection. And I think in the first um, in the first election in 2016, a pretty strong stance that he took was, you know, hitting back at China over this unfair trade. And it's going to be pretty hard for him to now hit the election trail again, ask for people to reelect him and not have a deal. Having said that, though, we just went through a bunch of economic numbers, consumer confidence. It's like off the charts. Like every So to the, I hate to say average voter, it seems like such a throwaway line. But anyway, to most voters, does it really matter unless it starts to impact them either in their job, in their pocketbook because things are more expensive or they can't access things? Yeah, I mean, he's gotten some pretty strong numbers right now, um, almost a 50-year low for unemployment. Like yeah. you said, these consumer confidence numbers speak for themselves today better than expected. Um, you know, I think he's been, the, Donald Trump's been very aware of what the markets have been doing. So I think a lot of people right now are looking forward to this end of June date that Trump mm-hmm. might possibly meet the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, and whether these two leaders will be able to sort of move the talks forward, at least keep them going, or whether everything will collapse. I think if they meet and it doesn't look good, perhaps the markets might um, might, might start to take notice if, if Trump definitely ratchets up the tariffs and hits everything um, on, on all Chinese imports, which he's threatened to do, that would definitely sent the markets into a tailspin. 
Um, and, I, you know, if people start seeing their, their 401k or some of their investments go down and things looking a little bit bleaker, we're still pretty far out from the elections. Um, he, he'll definitely be aware of that. So Well, and it's interesting, Sarah, to look at some of the decisions that companies are starting to make, whether it's Alibaba choosing to do this listing in, in Hong Kong, following listing in New York. You know, even what we're hearing from the Huawei CEO, and we're going to hear those comments in just a few minutes uh, that we got from uh, our colleague Tom McKenzie, companies are starting to mobilize around this sort of on both sides. So it won't be too long till we see some real kind of economic and maybe business effects of this, right? Absolutely. I think the sort of um, change of tone that we heard from businesses in the past week, we saw yeah. people like the footwear makers, Nike, Adidas, um, a lot of retailers, Walmart saying it's going to hit profits. We're going to have to raise prices. You can bet if, if people start going to do their back to school shopping and suddenly all the items That's they want for point. their kids is are, are twice as much or a percentage more than, than the, what they were last year. Um, you know, once the, the consumer starts to shoulder the burden of this, I think that will change the tone again. Well, and Carol, it does feel yeah. like to, to Sarah's point that we're hearing CEOs essentially almost socialize this, right? Essentially to say mm-hmm. to both investors and ultimately to consumers who they know are listening, like, listen, be prepared. You're, and we've talked about this a lot on the show. Yeah. Your Walmart shopping list is going to get, you know, not insignificantly more expensive potentially. Absolutely. And will I that think- put any pressure? I mean, what, what are people telling you? Did, will the president and his administration ultimately respond uh, to that impact? Well, I do think, you know, they're obviously more than aware. These previous lists of tariffs, they've actually pulled items off that they mm. realized there'd be a consumer, a heavy consumer demand on. A lot of it is sort of the, the secondary items now that imports right. that businesses buy that are on these lists. And so there's a reason they created the list that way to begin with. And, uh, you know, I think it would be a really big leap right now to, to start hitting those toys, those books, those iPhones that are coming in from China, um, you know, they're, they, they definitely know that that's going to, where they're going to get some flack. Ugh, it's just wild that it's still going on, <laughs> right? All right, we'll see what kind of resolution we get. Um, Sarah, thank you so much. Really great to have you in studio, too. Sarah McGregor, she's our U.S. Economic Policy Team Leader at Bloomberg News, based in Washington, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. President Trump last week blacklisted Huawei Technologies. That's the Chinese maker of smartphones. Our Bloomberg TV's Tom McKenzie conducted an exclusive interview with the founder and CEO of Huawei, Ren Zhengfei. Here is that conversation. The U.S. has never bought products from us. Even if the U.S. wants to buy our products in the future, I may not sell to them. There's no need for a negotiation. I will ignore Trump. Then, with whom can he negotiate? If he calls me, I may not answer. But he doesn't even have my number. I see his tweets and I think it's laughable because they're self-contradictory. The list of companies that supply Huawei with components but also software that are now cutting off those supplies is growing. Of course, Calcom, Intel, Arm, Panasonic, Google as well. So I guess the question is, for how long can Huawei survive without those supplies of both components and software? The U.S. manages its own companies. The U.S. is not the international police. They can't manage the whole world. The rest of the world decides whether they should work with us based on their own business interests and positions. 
If some companies don't want to work with us, it's like a hole in the airplane. We are working to fix the hole, but the airplane is still able to fly. Of the chips we've been using, half are from US companies and half we produce ourselves. If the U.S. imposes further restrictions on us, we'll reduce our purchases from the U.S. and use more of our own chips. If American companies have permission from Washington to sell to us, we'll continue to buy from them. What exactly have you put in place in terms of contingencies? We might have contingency plans for the core of the airplane, the engine and fuel tank, but we may not have a plan for the wings. We need to review the situation all over again and fix those problems. You can come back to interview us in two or three years to see if we still exist. If we're gone in two or three years, please remember to bring a flower and put it on our grave. You've talked about having a two-year lead in terms of 5G on your competitors. Does that lead get eroded? Definitely. If we slow down, it's because the wing of the airplane has lots of holes. If we fly slowly but others fly fast, of course they can catch us up. But we will keep fixing the holes. We will fly fast again once all the holes are fixed. What extent of damage, how much damage do you expect to be felt in the consumer division of the business? So smartphones and laptops, which depend on US chips, but also US software. We might miss our expected growth target, but we are still growing. Being able to grow in the toughest battle environment, that just reflects how great we are. And you had bragging rights earlier this year. You overtook Apple as the number two smartphone maker. You saw smartphone sales in the first quarter jump by about 50%. And of course, you do have that goal of becoming the number one smartphone maker in the world. Does that goal now have to be shelved? We can become bigger or smaller. We are not a public company. We are not only pursuing growth or profit. It's good enough for us to just survive. There have been calls by some in China for Beijing to retaliate against Apple. Is that a, an action that China should be looking at taking? That will not happen, first of all. And second of all, if that happens, I'll be the first to protest. Apple is the world's leading company. If there was no Apple, there would be no mobile internet. If there was no Apple to help show us the world, we would not see the beauty of this world. Apple is my teacher. It's advancing in front of us. As a student, why should I oppose my teacher? I would never do that. The critics of Huawei would say that you've got to where you are through intellectual property theft and government support. What is your response to that? The US has not developed that technology, so from where should I steal it? It's more likely that they steal our technology. Now we are leading the US. If we were behind, Trump wouldn't need to make so many efforts to attack us. He attacks us because we are now more advanced than them. 
And that is Huawei founder and CEO Ren Zhengfei speaking with Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie. Uh, That was at Huawei's headquarters in Shenzhen. And we should mention, Carol, you can catch more of that exclusive interview. It has been turned into a Bloomberg television special called Huawei Connected and Contested. It'll air this Friday at 9 p.m. Wall Street time. You got to get ready for the big payback. So you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. And we had some deal flow today. Global Payments agreeing to buy Total System Services in a deal valued at $21.5 billion. And earlier, our team here at Bloomberg Radio, uh, Lisa Bromowitz and Paul Sweeney, caught up with the Global Payments CEO, Jeff Sloan. Here's what he had to say. Well, I think the rate of innovation in payments is only accelerated. If you look, for example, here in New York, as well as in the United States, contactless, the announcement you've seen from Visa and JP Morgan coming to the subways uh, in Manhattan uh, in the next month or two is just one example of the rate of continued innovation and acceleration of change in payments. Therefore, it's important that you have scale. It's hard to make those investments and all the new products and services that are the most attractive to our merchant base without having enough scale to fund those in the first place. So it's pretty clear over the last few months that the bar for scale is ever higher. So that's Global Payments CEO Jeff Sloan talking to uh, Lisa Bromitz and Paul Sweeney earlier. Hey, what's going on, you guys? Uh, let's bring in uh, Nabila Ahmed. She is M&A reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Jenny Serain, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, New York. It's a big uh, deal. And another big deal. What's going on? Three deals of $20 industry. billion dollars yeah. or more. What's happening, Jenny Serain? Well, so I think... Um, so, yeah, we've seen three mega mergers this year in the Do you need a cup space. of coffee? <laughs> I know. <honestly. laughs> I know. It's been it's, one of those days. No, I'm with Listen, you. Listen, three I, $20 billion deals. It wears you out. I know. It's a long weekend, too. <laughs> I think all of these payment CEOs, they love to say, you know, payments is a scale game and we all need scale. And so they... Are they right? I mean, these are guys that... Um, a lot of people don't actually know what these players do. A lot, basically, they take pennies from every transaction. Yeah. So every time you swipe your card or hit checkout online, they get a few pennies from that. Um, transaction and so I mean it, the volume volume is, is really friend. the key and so yeah. they have to make sure that they're signing up new businesses every day to you know process payments with and so that's really what you see driving this um, and payments is a very lucrative space and so everybody really wants to be that big player all right Nabila so d- give us the deal context here because I-, I guess everybody sort of assumed that there was going to be more but Three deals of this size in this quick succession. These are some busy bankers. But also, how do the dynamics of all this deal-making change when kind of everybody knows that everybody's talking to each other, right? Exactly. Look, this has made the financial services bankers very happy this year. The fees have just been bananas. (laughs) Exactly. They've got Jeff Sloan to thank. So Global Payments and Total System had actually been talking on and off for about it about 10 years. Wow. And it finally, they started sort of talks heated up again towards the start of this year. And as they saw their competitors lining up to partner up, I think it's they sort of started to feel like now was really the time. Um, and as the Total uh, chairman told us earlier today, he was like, you know, it was the right deal at the right time. They could see their they would run out of dance partners if they didn't do something soon. Yeah. So what about the consolidation? Does at some point antitrust regulators have to come in and saying there's too much consolidation in this industry or we're we not even close yet? 
I think with this deal particularly, they're very confident of getting it through. The other deals are pretty well positioned as well. I think you've got so many other partners as well that you've got Apple and Amazon as partners. You've mm-hmm. got Visa, MasterCard. It's still quite a big marketplace. I mean, Jenny, you jump in here, but that's my my understanding is that. Well, and I wanted to ask you that because Dave Wilson mentioned earlier that a bunch of the stocks are up on this news. So help us understand the context because it's not always the case that you have a lot of winners uh, when a deal like this is announced. Yeah, I think... Um, so especially these guys really focus on the payment processing side. And so they basically go out and try and find all these small businesses and, and get them to accept their processing services. They're, it's still an extremely fragmented market. I yeah. mean, this is yeah. like the most competitive piece of the payments ecosystem. And so uh, I don't think in terms of like antitrust kind of stuff, I don't see that becoming a huge issue anytime soon. But yeah, I mean, everybody wins in the payments ecosystem when you see more uh consumers turning to cards instead of cash. And so that's really what you're uh, seeing here is, is people trying to take advantage of that as quickly as they can. Well, I mean, where are we in the world when it comes to moving increasingly to cards or mobile and so on and so forth? Because we always constantly talk about emerging economies. China, for instance, right? Everything's done on the phone. So where are we kind of if you look at the rest of the world? There's still a long way to go. Um, I think it's MasterCard CEO Ajay Banga. He has some crazy stat that like 80% of the world's payments are still done in cash. And obviously that changes based on the country that you're in. Right. The U.S. is much further along than, say, um, some of the more emerging kind of markets. So it'll be interesting to see where that, that maybe shakes out if everywhere goes to cash or if you move to a place like China where they've completely leapfrogged cash and cards and it's all mobile payments. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of watch as different economies emerge. All right, so... Sorry, I was just going to say from a macro perspective, what's really interesting to me is that the driver for this deal is the same sort of drivers that we are seeing for Disney Fox merging. We're seeing it's a technological shift that's disrupting so many industries. Mm -hmm. This is the same story here. All right. So, Nabil, I got to ask you, because I first read about this deal a week plus ago through your scoop, I believe, on the Bloomberg Terminal Sunday scoop. Uh, What's next? More consolidation? A little bit more here. I mean, these guys have said themselves that they want to do more deals Mm -hmm. and we will see something in like software and more specialized software. But we're chasing a few other big ones at the moment. We'll keep you posted. All right. Well, and I do wonder in this space specifically, Jenny, I mean, are there companies investors should be keeping an eye on that they either might be scooped up or they need to do some uh, acquiring themselves? Yeah, I think in this deal, you're seeing like the number five and number six players in the merchant acquiring space combined. Um, And there's still a lot of companies below that level that are, you know, worth billions of dollars and would be very happy to find a dance partner, as Nabila (laughs) said. So I think it's definitely possible that we see more from here. All right. Well, a very, very busy Tuesday as we try and sort of digest all of this uh, deal making. I love the fact that these two companies, they're just, you know, they're only separated by a little stretch of uh, Interstate 85. A little local knowledge there. they for met for lunch or something? Yeah, probably like somewhere like LaGrange no, or something. We didn't, we didn't have to watch like the Lear Jets on no, the runways to no. be like, are they meeting? They literally could like hop up and down. It's a very, like, it's a long just stretch. Just yeah. the Uber... Yeah. And they did actually, that was one of the things they said to me was that, oh, you know, we're from the same state. We're pretty close by each other. We've been watching each other and circling each other for a long time. Well, and there have been executives, I think, (laughs) that have have gone uh, back and forth between these. It's a big But it took 10 years. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yes. They've been talking about Long courtship. It's a long courtship. I'm <laughs> there just you saying. go. Nabila Ahmed stuff, is Thank M&A you. reporter for Bloomberg. Jenny Serain, finance reporter for Bloomberg, both on one of the biggest stories of the day. They say that breaking up. 
very cute. This story is among our most read on the Bloomberg today about a breakup of sorts, how Amazon is getting ready to uh, purge a bunch of their small suppliers. Uh, so let's get uh, the details on this one. Let's head to our Seattle Bureau. That's where we find Spencer Soper, technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News. Spencer, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. What's going on here? Uh, hi, yeah. So basically what we've been told is that there's been planning underway that goes back to the fall of uh, Amazon looking to thin out the number of smaller vendors that it buys products uh, directly from wholesale and then resells to its customers in a retail model. It's looking to uh, cut down the number of vendors it has, in which case it shifts more of these uh, product suppliers to their marketplace. And that is where uh, Amazon lets independent merchants post their goods directly on the site, sell directly to shoppers, and then Amazon simply takes a commission on each sale. So it's a, a, a significant shift in, their, uh, in the mix of inventory on, on the site. So help us understand that. I mean, because this seems like not good news for those uh, smaller merchants. And is that just because it puts more of the onus on them to to figure out how to surface their products? Help us understand the tension here. Yeah, exactly. So if you're a um, if you're currently selling to Amazon wholesale bulk orders, you know Amazon has staff dedicated to moving your product. Got Amazon it. is sharing in your uh, inventory risk and price risk because it's buying those products directly from you. Uh, Amazon has a lot more skin in the game on how those products sell on its web store. If you are an independent merchant uh, selling on Amazon, where Amazon's simply like a consignment shop taking a commission on each sale, Amazon doesn't have that skin in the game. It doesn't have to dedicate employees you know, to your, to your success, and so you're basically on your own. So a lot of the support that Amazon was providing uh, you're going to have to provide that for yourself now and basically figure out how to stand out on this, uh, you know, cluttered uh, site that has products from millions of, of merchants. And so is Amazon making this decision? Is your sense, uh, Spencer, that Amazon's making this decision? Because it's like, yeah, we're good. We got all the products or, you know, we get the mix that we need without really having to work as hard as we need to to, to have this previous setup. Marketplace is great and we can do it all that way and it costs us less and there's less headache. Yeah, they're 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 trying to find the right mix. Yeah, right. So they th- there's always going to be a place for Amazon to have a retail business. It's always going to need must have products at competitive prices, and the best way to do that is have those direct relationships with the manufacturers and suppliers of those products. Um, and then it also wants to have this marketplace model. And so we're we're thinking you know more obscure products here that uh, Amazon is deciding it's not worth their time to buy them. Wholesale and the co- and the carrying costs, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so it's shifting more uh, more inventory to the to the marketplace. That that model has been growing more quickly on Amazon anyway. This is also an op- an opportunity for Amazon to charge fees for things like storing things in its warehouses and packing and shipping. So it uh, it is a place for Amazon to make more money as a middleman as opposed to a to a retailer. So basically. They're making more room for, let's say, a Colgate toothpaste, right? Well-known brand, and they'll continue to have that relationship. But Jason's toothpaste, 
mom and pop shop, right? They're not going to buy a bulk amount, have it in their warehouse so that when somebody orders, they'll distribute it. Now, Jason's toothpaste has to do the direct selling themselves, the direct mailing out and so on and so forth. Yeah, but it could still be in Amazon's warehouse. And that's the okay. distinction hmm. is even if you're a marketplace seller, then it, rather than Amazon taking on this cost and kind of sharing it with you, the cost of warehousing and, and shipping and everything, if you are a marketplace seller, you, you can still have access to Amazon's distribution network. You just pay for those services. Okay. So now Amazon is, you know, whether, whether Jason is selling that tube of toothpaste for a dollar, $5, $10, Amazon doesn't care. It's making money either way. It's getting the commission and then it's potentially getting the additional fees for storage, for packing, and for shipping. Why are they doing this? Well, this goes back because this is a big shift in what they've been doing for twenty years. Well, it's it's a it's a big it's a big shift, but it has it has been happening, and it ties into this long term uh, initiative they've had called Hands Off the Wheel. Right. And what they what they do is the the marketplace sales are are self service. You create an account online, you post your inventory online. It's largely automated. They don't have to negotiate contracts with you. So basically, the initiative goes back a couple of years where Amazon wants to grow its e-commerce business without adding a lot of people to manage it. So it's an effort to uh, uh, you know, use the people that they have to manage the, their biggest and most important accounts. And then the, the folks that don't make the cut are going to have to do it on their own on the marketplace. Mm. Great stuff. Spencer Soper, really nice story. Good scoop. Technology and e-commerce reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from our Seattle bureau. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. Alan Zaffron back with us. He is Senior Managing Director and Wealth Manager for First Republic Private Wealth Management. That group oversees about $139 billion. He joins us on the phone from lovely Palo Alto, California. Alan, welcome back from what I hope was a long weekend uh, for you. I hope you weren't you know, working your tail off. No, Jason, I took the time to relax and enjoy a market that's still up 12% for the year despite the correction we're in. So, yeah, uh, so, so, what, so what gives here? I mean, we're seeing all these trade headlines. We've spent a lot of time today, as we do many days, uh, talking about this trade impasse between the U.S. and China. And yet, as Carol and I talked about at the top of our show with our market experts, while the bond market may be freaking out a, a little bit or reacting, maybe to use a more uh, mundane <laughs> technical term, technical term, uh, you know, equities kind of bouncing around. Uh, what's the market making of all this rhetoric? Well, yeah, I think uh, I think the equity market is telling the bond market, everyone take a chill pill for a minute and relax. So. Yeah. First of all, recognize this is like a 5% correction in the S&P. We went up 26% from the bottom of 2018 up through May 1st. So a little give back is nothing uh, surprising. And what's interesting is 
you kind of can point to it, right? It's the banter about trade talk again. It's the concern about some weakness abroad. And, when, you know, it's recognizable. The reality is we're still geared towards earnings growing this year. And you've got a very accommodative Fed. In fact, a Fed that could get even more accommodative and loose with monetary policy. So, so wait, so Alan, so what, shocks, yeah, so what yeah. is up with the bond market, right? You know, when we have this disconnect between markets, like we try to make sense of it, although I should point out that equities have pretty much uh, shot down to their lows of the session here, and we're now down about 191 on the Dow. So we have a more negative sentiment uh, in the equity markets as the bond market has gone up, So, which is a more traditional trade that we see between those two markets. But you know, what do you believe? Do you believe the bond market and what they're saying and kind of the negativity that seems to be that the bond market seems to be forecasting? Um. People are, I believe, misinterpreting what the yield curve is doing. Basically, Treasury rates are going down for two reasons. One is we've now got a change in market expectations about what the Fed's going to do. They're not going to hike rates. They're, we're increasing the likelihood they are going to lower rates. And secondly, you've got money flying in from overseas. The weakness overseas draws safe haven capital into long-term Treasuries. So I actually think the yield curve is understandable. The market is calibrating an increased likelihood the Fed will cut rates next instead of raising rates, and the weakness from abroad makes a 10-year Treasury at 2.3%, a heck of a lot more interesting than buying a 10-year German bond at a negative 0.16% for 10 years. Can you imagine that? It's crazy. German government, $100, and 10 years later, you know, after paying them 16 cents a year for the right, they'll hand you your money back. Right. So... That's what's going on. Let me. Can I give you a piece of good news? Please. Yeah. Imagine. Imagine this world. Let's let's talk about inflation for a minute, or instead, let's talk about the absence of inflation. So, if you go back to 2000, the core PCE, the the personal consumption expenditure index, that's the measure the Fed uses for inflation. Mm-hmm. It's averaged 1.7 percent for the last 18 years, and in fact. The last time it hit the Fed's target, which is 2%, was early 2012. We haven't seen inflation, as far as the government is concerned, in seven years. So guess what might just happen? The Fed has two targets, keep full employment and have inflation at 2%. What's going to start happening is a conversation from the Fed about, hmm, maybe we should change that inflation target. Instead of let's have inflation at 2%. Let's aim for an average rate of inflation of 2% over an intermediate time frame. If you hear that kind of Greenspan-like gobbledygook from the Fed, let me translate that for you. Hey, we need to get that inflation rate up to 25 or 3% at some point so that on average, over the next five years, it's going to average 2%. What does that mean? We've got to keep the Fed rate lower for longer to pump up this economy to get inflation kicking in because we don't want to be Japan. If you got that from the Fed, guess what? You got just another reason to be aggressive on equities because they're going to keep rates looser for longer. And don't be surprised if you start hearing about this floating trial balloons in the press and talking about it at academic uh, conferences and speeches because the Fed is worried about deflation, watching what's happened in Japan, what is happening in Europe, and it doesn't want deflation on its watch. So this, this market is perverse. Weakness abroad, which on appearances is scary, leads to yet another central bank action to, if you will, propel asset prices higher by keeping conditions loose. 
And that is a possible upside surprise. And that's, again, one of the reasons I believe why equities aren't falling that much. There's a belief that, if anything, the Fed is going to cut rates before it raises rates. What a world we're living in where that's what we're talking about versus, you know, six months ago, Alan. It really is such a a change in tune. And, you know, as you say, against a global backdrop that is, to say the least, uncertain. It absolutely is uncertain. And what you'll see is central banks almost collectively across the board are now loose with their policy because they recognize we are in – this world we're in right now, which is arguably another industrial revolution, part of its implications in the short run is uh, disinflation as a variety of uh, services and goods get reduced in price and uh, without, with some job displacement. There needs to be a different mechanism in which to kick prices back up and reemploy people. But I also... So, I, Go ahead. No, but I also do wonder about the pressure. You know, a lot of workers, certainly middle, mid-tier or, or lower, don't have a lot of ability to kind of force companies to drive up wages. I know they've moved up some, but do you know what I'm saying? We talk about the lack of unions and so on and so forth that, you know, a lot of workers don't have the power that they used to to drive up wages. So I, I don't know. I just feel like I'm not quite sure we're measuring I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And the other, the jobs at risk. And if you talk to the uh, Federal Reserve of Philadelphia, um, up to fifty uh, percent of U.S. jobs in the next decade are going to be at quote at some risk yeah. of of job displacement. And the hardest part is getting those people gainfully reemployed right. in the economy. Correct. It's, it's a furtherance of the haves and the have-nots. That's the world we're That's living exactly in. Exactly right what it is. Hey, Alan, um, we got to run, but thank you so much. Uh, great to check in with you today, Alan Zafron. He's senior managing director, wealth manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management. Over 139 billion dollars in assets under management. On the phone from Palo Alto, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 